presents The Mafia Hitman's Daughter by Linda Scarpa with Linda Rosencrantz. Narrated by Elise Arsenault. Forward. Behind even the worst Mafia capo or hitman are a loving and long-suffering wife and family that enable his violent, parasitic, and dangerous lifestyle. Young, pretty, and innocent Linda Scarpa found this out the slow, hard way. Greg Scarpa, the man she called lovingly Daddy, was justly renowned on the New York streets as the Grim Reaper. As Colombo family high lord executioner, he was possibly the most violent and ruthless killer inducted into the American Mafia. In her memoir, The Mafia Hitman's Daughter, Linda Scarpa's clear and machine-gun direct prose depict her journey from an innocent, sweet daddy's girl to a helpless and hapless victim of abuse and violence. One by one, her beloved friends and family members vanish into jail or the grave because of the Mafia's perverse codes. Here is another contribution to the drama of the decline of the once mighty Five Families of New York. In the end, despite the easy money and good times, Scarpa demonstrates Mafia daughters and wives end up just as lonely, loveless, depressed, and broke as the rest of us, but with the threat of sudden death or maiming a permanent companion on the entire road there. The life, as she says, is full of misery, death, and nightmares. Greg Scarpa claimed he stopped counting his hits after number 50. Scarpa should have included as victims his wives, daughter, and other family members. They all suffered at his hands. Mark Sanjini. Chapter 1. Once Around the Park. I was in my sophomore year at Bishop Ford Central Catholic High School in the Park Slope section of Brooklyn, New York. I wasn't quite 16 yet, but I was growing up a little bit too fast, always dolled up and looking older than I was. My younger brother, Joey, was a freshman. Every day we were taken back and forth to school by a car service. Same driver, a Spanish guy, picked us up every morning around 7.45. His name was Jose Guzman. One day, Joey was sick and I went to school alone. That day, I was wearing a button-up blouse, miniskirt, leggings, and high heels. Always with the high heels. When the driver came to pick me up, I opened the door to hop in the back seat like we always did. But the guy said, Oh, you're alone. Why don't you sit in the front with me? I figured, okay, because I was used to him, so I sat in the front. As he started to drive away from the house, we were living on Avenue J at the time, he said, You know, if you don't mind, I have to pick somebody else up before I take you to school. So I said, sure. As long as I got to school on time. I was a kid. I didn't know what was going on. He said, Oh, yeah, no problem. It's just going to take a couple of minutes. He took a left onto Coney Island Avenue and drove for about ten minutes. He got to a traffic circle and then headed into Prospect Park. I had no idea what was happening. Who do you have to pick up? You're going in the park. Yeah, don't worry about it. I have to pick somebody up. He drove to a very secluded area in the park and stopped the car. 
Obviously, I knew something wasn't right. He started telling me that I was so beautiful and that he couldn't take his eyes off me and how much he was attracted to me. All this sexual stuff. I was so scared. I had to figure a way out of there. I really have to go to school. Yeah, well, you're not going to school right now. Listen, if you don't take me to school now, the school's going to call my house. My parents are going to know that I'm not at school. Oh, don't worry about that. I'll get you to school, eventually. Then he grabbed my hand, and I'll never forget this. He put it up to his mouth, and he licked the crease between my index finger and my middle finger, as if they were my legs. That's what I'm going to do to you, baby. And then he was doing that. He ripped my shirt open. Then this big guy started coming over toward my side of the car, and I was in a panic. My God, you can't do this. I have to go to school. I was a kid, and I wasn't thinking clearly at first about how to handle what was happening. When he was about to do whatever he was going to do to me, I said, Listen, my parents are going to know. The school's going to call them. It doesn't have to be like this. He was kissing my neck. So I tilted my head back, and I started to let him do it. Then he started grabbing me and pulling at me, really getting into it, like he was ready to attack me. God only knew what he was going to do after that. All that was going through my head was that I was going to get killed, raped, and then killed. It doesn't have to be like this. I'll meet you after school. Pick me up after school. Then he just stopped. What are you going to tell your parents? I'll tell them I'm going over to my friend's house. We'll plan this. You could pick me up every day after school, and we'll go somewhere. I'll make up something to tell my parents. I did everything I could to make him think I was into it as much as he was, so I could get myself out of there. Wow. Okay. That's great. I couldn't believe it. He actually thought I was okay with it. So he tried to kiss me and touch me. My heart was racing and my stomach was churning. I just wanted to vomit. My whole body was trembling and I could feel the sweat trickling down my back. Calm down. Everything is going to be okay. We'll have a great time. I'll pick you up after school. Just don't tell anybody. Be sure you don't tell anybody that I took you here. No, of course not. I'm not going to tell anybody. I can't wait for you to pick me up. We're going to have a good time. Just get me to school before they notice I'm gone because if I miss my first period, they'll call the house. Okay, okay, I'll get you to school. I'll be there. What time do you want me to pick you up? Pick me up at 2.30. Okay, okay. He drove out of the park. On the way to school, I kept thinking that I got myself out of that. Somehow, I got myself out of it. He really believed me. When he dropped me off at school, he said, Okay, 2.30. I'll meet you here. Okay, I'll be here at 2.30. The minute I got inside the building, I ran to the bathroom. I tried to fix my blouse and look presentable, but I was shaken so bad, I was making it worse. So I just gave up. Then I ran to the payphone down the hall to call my mother, Linda, who was known as Big Linda. Everybody called me Little Linda. Mom, pick me up. Now. What happened? Pick me up. Now. Well, what happened? The words stuck in my throat. Please, just pick me up. Just pick me up. I'll tell you when you get here. Then I went back and waited for a while in the bathroom until I figured she'd be outside. 
I never went into any classrooms. She got there really fast, even though the school was in the Prospect Park area. I jumped in the car. My face was flushed. My blouse was all untucked. My skirt was wrinkled. I was a mess. As soon as my mother saw me, she knew something bad had happened. The guy who drove me to school took me to the park, and he tried to have sex with me. He tried to rape me. She flipped out, went totally crazy, crying, screaming at the top of her lungs in the car, pounding on the steering wheel. What? That motherfucker! That motherfucker! Yelling, totally insane. It was the ride home from hell. All I wanted to do was get to the house. The minute she got in the house, she called my father. He told her not to leave the house. Fuck you, my mother told him. She was crazy. She didn't care what anybody said. She ran into the kitchen and grabbed a huge butcher knife. She raced back out to the car and went to the office of the car service. She told the dispatcher there who she was and asked for the address of the guy who took me to school that day. He told her that he didn't have his address. He said he didn't even know his name. My mother pulled out the knife and put it to the guy's throat. She told him again she wanted the driver's name and address. The next thing she knew, my father and a couple members of his crew showed up. They beat the shit out of the dispatcher until he gave up the driver's information. When my mother got home, she told me everything was going to be okay. He was never going to come near me again. She said she was going to take me to school from then on. I went nuts. I started screaming. I'm not going to school. I don't want to go to school. He's going to come after me. Nobody's going to come after you. Relax. Just then, my father came home with his crew. He got all emotional. He was an emotional guy, especially when it came to me. Oh, my God. What did he do to you? I want to know what he did to you. I told him exactly what had happened. He's fucking dead. This guy is dead. I was in total shock. I wasn't thinking about what he was saying. I just wanted to be safe in my house. Before I knew it, my father and his crew left. When they came home, my father told me they went after him and gave him a beating. But for the next few days, what Guzman had done to me, and what he could have done, was weighing on my father's mind. And he wasn't satisfied with just giving Guzman a beating. He was also afraid that Guzman would retaliate and come after me. Who knows what he would have done to me, especially since I had told him I would never tell anybody about it. So my father and his crew went back to Guzman's house. They rang the bell. When he opened the door and saw them, he ran, but he didn't get too far. They shot him in the head. After they killed him, they came back to the house. My father said, Listen, this guy's an animal. He got what he deserved. He'll never be able to touch you or anybody else. He tried to rationalize murdering Guzman by telling me that I would have been dead or raped and in a hospital somewhere if I hadn't been able to get myself away from him. And God knows if he's done this to other people. By telling me that I had actually saved other girls from being raped, my father was trying to make me feel better about the fact that they killed this guy. I was just sitting there, looking at my father, and listening. I was in total shock. Finally, as horrifying as it was, I began to understand. Oh my God. He's dead. The guy is dead. You killed him? Dad, really? You killed him? Yeah, he's dead. You'll never have to worry about him again. I felt so bad. I was just a kid. Dad, did you have to kill him? Did you have to kill him? 
Linda. If I didn't do this, who knows if he would have tried to hurt you again, or if he would have tried to hurt somebody else. We don't know if he's done this before. It was crazy. He was trying to rationalize to a kid why he had to kill the guy. I didn't want to believe it. But the next day, I read about Guzman's murder in the newspaper, and I knew it was true. The article said he had a lot of money on him when he was murdered. When my father read that, he said, I wish I had known he had all that money on him. I would have made them take the money after they shot him. I ripped the article out and kept it in my wallet. Every once in a while, I'd take it out and look at it. He had kids, and I felt so bad and guilty about him getting killed. But what was I supposed to do? Not say anything? Who knew why he tried to rape me? I could only think he didn't know who my father was. Chapter 2 Gregory Scott Bessinia Loving Family Man My mother met my father in a bar in her Brooklyn neighborhood in the early 1960s, when she was just a teenager. She was 17 when she became his mistress. He was in his mid-30s and married. He told her he was involved with the Colombo crime family. Unlike other mob guys, my father told her about everything. The burglaries, the numbers racket, the murders, everything. I'll let her tell you about it. When I grew up in Brooklyn, I lived in an area where there were mostly made guys. All the guys used to go to my grandmother's house, to the back room, and have crap games and take numbers. In fact, my grandmother took the numbers. She used to pick up the numbers at church at six in the morning and give them to me, and I used to hand them all to the guys in the back room. I was probably eleven or twelve when I was first exposed to these guys. They were all really nice. If you needed anything, they were always there for you. If they were winning in the crap games or something, they would give you money. They were very generous. I knew they were gangsters, but with us, the people they knew, they were just great. I grew up with them, and I thought they were great. I started dating a maid guy from the Gambino crime family, Larry Pistone. We'd go to the Copa Cabana in Manhattan. I was at the Copa almost every night and the Latin Quarter Club. We were always out for dinner. He gave me money for clothes, to get my hair done, whatever I wanted. But I also saw a bad side of him. One time we had to pick up money from someone. Larry knocked on the door. The guy's wife answered. Then I saw him pull the guy out and hit him. That was the first time I really saw a bad side of one of those guys. I had been dating Larry for about a year and a half. One night, when I wasn't going out with Larry, a friend of mine called and asked if I wanted to go to this new bar that had just opened at 72nd Street and 13th Avenue in Brooklyn, called the Flamingo Lounge. We went to the club, and some of my father's friends were there. We were having a few drinks at the bar. At one point, I turned around, and in walked this very handsome man with a big smile on his face. I didn't know at the time, but he was Greg Scopper came over to the bar, took his jacket off, he was dressed real sharp, and looked at me. He knew one of my father's friends and asked him to introduce us. I thought, wow, but I still didn't realize that he was a gangster yet. I just knew he was really unique. After we were introduced, he stood next to me, bought me a drink, and started talking to me. You know, 
you have the most beautiful black eyes. They're like olives. Black olives. Do you work? I told him I had just gotten a job on Wall Street. Well, you know what I would love to do, Linda? I would love to air condition that drain you ride on and just do everything for you. Oh, Greg, that's a new one. I had never heard that line before. That night, I knew there was something there. I could see it in him, too, because he came right over to be introduced to me. I was charmed by him, but I didn't even know he was a gangster. The smile on his face, it was just a beautiful smile. As we were talking, I said to him, Come on, do you dance? Of course I dance. Well, come on, let's dance. So he took my hand and led me onto the dance floor. When it was time for me to leave, he asked for my number. But I was dating Larry at the time, so I told Greg I needed time to break up with Larry. Well, you know what, Greg? I'll call you. Oh, you want to call me? You'll wait a week or two. No, I promise you, I will call you. So he gave me his number. A few days went by and I still hadn't called him, but I did go out with Larry and we continued going to the Copacabana. We were ready to leave one night when Larry's wife pulled up in front of the Copa. I didn't want any trouble, so I got in a cab and went to the Flamingo Lounge, where Greg was. I told Greg what had just happened and he wanted to know what I was doing with Larry. As we were talking, I heard a horn beeping outside the club. We were sitting by the window at the bar and I looked out and saw Larry. He knew I used to go to the Flamingo. Greg and I went outside. Larry said, Linda, get in the car. I told him no. She's coming with me, Greg said. Now, I still didn't realize that Greg was a gangster, but I knew Larry was a gangster. Well, Greg, maybe I should go. No, get in the car, Greg said. His car was parked right in front. I got in Greg's car and Larry pulled right up next to us. Linda, get in the car, come on. I told Greg I should probably just go with Larry. Then all of a sudden, I see Greg bending down under his seat. No, don't do that, Greg, he's a gangster. Meanwhile, so was Greg. Let me just go with him. I'll talk to him and I'll tell him that it's over. I got out of Greg's car and I went with Larry. I told Larry that I didn't want to see him anymore especially after what had happened with his wife. I said I didn't want to be bothered. Then I told him to take me home. He was apologizing like crazy, but I told him just to take me home. A day or two later, I went to the Flamingo and Greg was in the bar. He told me what had been happening. I have a sit-down. What do you mean you have a sit-down? He told me it was a sit-down with Joe Colombo, Larry Pistone, and somebody from the Gambino family that Larry was with. It was over me. At that point, I knew Greg was a gangster in the Colombo family. So he went to the sit-down, and they were arguing back and forth. Joe Colombo finally asked, What does Linda want? Greg said, She wants to be with me, and I want to be with her. Greg came out the winner. Larry wasn't supposed to go near me anymore. I was Greg's, and that was it. And that was how it ended with Larry, and I started seeing Greg. After that, I was with Greg every day and every night. He used to send beautiful fruit baskets to my house every day. I lived with my father, and my father loved it, but he didn't know I was seeing a gangster.
He wanted to know who was sending the fruit baskets. I told him it was this really nice guy named George I had just met. That went on for a week or two. And then all of a sudden, Greg started sending flowers instead. My father wanted to know why he was sending flowers. He told me to tell him to send the fruit baskets again. Greg bought me a car. He bought me a little dog, a French poodle. I told Greg I was going to give the dog to my father to keep him company. He said whatever I wanted to do was fine. It was all about me. Whatever made me happy is what he did. As we got closer, he told me all about himself and his family. He was born in Brooklyn in 1928. He was the second of five kids born to Italian immigrants. He had one brother, Sal, and three sisters, Marie, Vincenza, and Teresa, who wasn't well. His mother, Mary, used to take care of her. At one point, Teresa was in the hospital. One day, while she was there, the family brought her food. They left her alone for a few minutes while she was eating. She choked on the food and died. When Greg was really young, about seven, he had to work with his father, who used to deliver coal. Greg hated it and always wanted to live a better life, the same type of life the local gangsters were living. When we were dating, Greg used to take me to his mother's house in Brooklyn for dinner. She made the greatest homemade pasta. When I had Linda, she knitted beautiful outfits for her. Greg was a family man. Everything was about his family. He just adored his family and the people close to him, and nobody could talk bad about them. Greg and I spent a lot of time with his sister Marie and her husband Tony. When we bought our condo in Florida some years later, they bought one right next door to us. We were really close to Marie and her husband. Greg and Sal used to always butt heads. He loved Sal, but Sal was a thick head and never listened to Greg. When Sal got made, he wasn't in the Colombo family, but he became part of that family later on. Sal got involved with the mob first. By the time Greg was about 17, he was pretty street smart. He caught the eye of local mobster Charlie La Cicero of the Profaci crime family, who recruited him into the life. Greg told me about the ceremony when he was made in 1950. First, he said, he had to be accepted for membership by all the guys in the family. Then he was called to a meeting with the boss, the underboss, the consigliere, all of the captains, and the member who proposed him for membership. The boss then asked him if he was willing to kill and obey any orders given to him by his bosses. When Greg said yes, the boss who was running the ceremony asked if he was left-handed or right-handed. When he said he was right-handed, the boss pricked the trigger finger of that hand. A few drops of Greg's blood spilled onto a card bearing the image of a saint. The card was set on fire, and Greg said he had to pass the card quickly from hand to hand so he wouldn't get burned. While he was moving the card from one hand to the other, he took the oath of loyalty in Italian to the Mafia family. With this oath, I swear that if I ever violate this oath, may I burn as this paper. During the ceremony, Greg was specifically asked if he would participate in a killing. If he had said no... He wouldn't have been made. When my father met Greg, I introduced him as George, and Greg went right along with it. My father loved him. A couple days after they met, 
My father went to the club to play cards. Sonny, one of the guys at the club, told him I was going out with a big gangster named Greg Scopper. He said I couldn't be going out with Greg Scopper because I was seeing some man named George. When my father got home, he had some questions for me. Linda, this guy, Sonny, just told me that you're going out with Greg Scopper. Well, yeah, Dad, but you've met him, and he's really a nice guy. Greg Scopper? My father was in shock because Greg was a really big gangster. I told Greg what had happened, that one of the guys from the club, a guy he knew too, told my father about us, and that guy got a few smacks for opening his mouth. On the street, I knew everyone feared Greg. To me, I couldn't understand it because he was a sweetheart. He did everything for me. People were afraid to go into the Flamingo Lounge because they were afraid to meet up with him. But I didn't know him like that. To me, he was the best. He was always taking me to beautiful restaurants for dinner and drinks. He had my birthday that first year at the Copacabana. I walked in with him, and there was Joe Colombo and a whole bunch of good fellas sitting at the table. I was getting all these beautiful gifts. It was great to have the respect. People who had never talked to me before would pass me on the street and ask how I was doing. When I was at the Flamingo, I'd order Chinese food from a nearby Chinese restaurant. When they delivered it, the guy always told me I didn't have to pay. So I ordered Chinese food almost every night. Greg and I spent as much time as we could together. He used to pick me up in the daytime, and we'd go to the park and walk around. Then we'd sit in the car, just making out. He fell in love right away, and I could tell. He was a happy person, caring, giving to those he loved. But if you did him wrong, he would kill you. If you hurt his family in any way or disrespected them, Greg wasn't the type of person who believed in just giving you a beating, because then you could go to the cops and talk. So either you didn't say anything, or Greg would kill you. That's what he did. It was just part of the lifestyle. A lifestyle that he didn't hide from me. One night, he said, Let's take a ride. I have to meet this guy. I have to get some coins and stamps he's selling. So I took a ride, and I sat in the car across the street from the lot where the guy was parked. Greg went into the other guy's car. I saw him put his arm around the guy. Then all of a sudden, I heard, Boom, boom. He shot him in the head, and just took the stamps and the coins. He wasn't paying for them. Then he came back to the car like nothing happened. He was all smiles. But that was Greg. I think his adrenaline went up when he killed somebody. I was always with Greg. If he had to meet someone, I would be there. If people came to my house for a meeting or to talk to him, he never told me to go into the other room. In fact, if I got up to leave, he'd say, Sit down, sweetheart. And I'd sit down. Everyone got used to it. It was like I was one of the boys. Once, Greg and his crew did a robbery at an airport. It was jewelry. Greg said they had to bring the stuff back to the house. I said sure, as long as he gave me something. So the guys came over with these big airport bags and laid all the jewelry out on the table. Greg gave me whatever I wanted. Even though I knew what he did, I never thought Greg would get arrested. I never thought he'd get shot. I never thought he would die. 
it just wasn't in my head, none of that stuff, because he had a lot of backing from the FBI. I felt very secure with Greg, and I think Greg felt secure too, because he just did what he wanted. I mean, there was nothing he wouldn't do. And the FBI knew about it before he did it. Greg lived the gangster life. He'd go out killing people or robbing banks, robbing airports or trucks, and he'd talk to the FBI. After we dated for a while, I knew I wanted to have kids with Greg. I wanted my own family, my own kids. But in those days, you didn't have kids without getting married, and Greg was already married. I didn't want to hurt my father by doing that, so I talked to Greg about it. Listen, I'm going to just meet somebody and marry him. Then we can have kids now, until we can move in together. I don't want to have kids without being married. No, what are you, crazy? We just move in. We'll get an apartment. I told him I couldn't do that to my father, so I married this nice guy named Charlie. I lived with Charlie until I had Joey. Then, two or three months after Joey was born, Charlie left. And then a little while after that, Greg moved in. I grew up thinking Charlie was my real father. At that time, I was born in 1969, and Joey came along a couple years later. Having a baby without being married just wasn't done. My mother's marriage to Charlie ultimately ended. They eventually divorced, and Greg moved in with us. But I still called Charlie my father. Until I was about four or five years old, we lived with Charlie in Brooklyn. We lived on 55th Street between 17th and 18th Avenues. I didn't remember exactly when Greg came into the house because I was so young. I just remember that it was Charlie. Then all of a sudden, it was Greg because Greg was always part of our lives. I called him Greggy at the time. I didn't call him Dad. I called Charlie my dad, and so did my brother. But we were really confused. We didn't understand why Greg was in the house acting like a daddy. But then we also had Charlie who was daddy. My father had another family, his wife Connie, and four kids, Deborah, the oldest, Greg Jr., the second oldest, Bart, and Frankie, the youngest. When my father separated from Connie, she and the kids lived in New Jersey. I called Greg Jr., Gregory. He was about 20 years older than me. In the beginning, I didn't know he was my brother, because I didn't know Greg Sr. was my father. But Gregory was very good to me. He acted fatherly toward me. He used to call me Dollface, and he always gave me hugs and kisses. He was very affectionate, like a family member would be, and that just confused me even more. We asked a lot of questions, but my parents, Greg and my mother, didn't really make it easy for us. Well, Charlie is your dad. You have to see him every other Sunday, or every Sunday, whenever else you want you could see him but you see him on Sundays, my mother said. Even so, Greg acted like a real father in the house. He put us to bed, helped us with homework, all the things fathers did, except for Sundays when Charlie picked us up. But the fact was, even when we were young, we were being taught that Greg was in charge. Something happens, you tell me, and I'll take care of it, he told us. When my little brother Joey was about four, he got into a fight with another young boy. The kid bullied my brother, and my brother came home crying. What happened, Joey? My father asked. 
My brother told him that this kid had bothered him. My father went into his bedroom and came out holding a baseball bat. Okay, take this bat and hit him over the head with the bat. And then when he's crying, tell him to go get his father. He was telling this to a little four-year-old. So my brother went out to do what my father told him to do. But Joey made up with the other little boy and didn't end up hitting him. Most of the time, growing up on 55th Street was pretty normal. My father used to watch TV with us and play video games. He was a regular dad, taking care of us when we got hurt or when we were sick. One day, I was playing outside, and I fell and hurt my knee. I was screaming like somebody was killing me. My father came running out of the house because I was yelling at the top of my lungs. He jumped over the patio, thinking I must have been really injured. And there I was, with a little scratch on my knee. He picked me up and said, Oh, what happened, my baby? You got a little boo-boo? But meanwhile, he was having a heart attack because he thought something really bad had happened to me. Another time, I was extremely sick. I had such a high fever, and my father and my mother couldn't bring it down. They took me into the bathroom and put me in a cool bath. I was crying and screaming, and my fever just kept getting higher and higher. My father couldn't deal with the stress. He got so crazy that he actually punched himself in the head, knocked himself out, and fell into the tub. He literally knocked himself out. One summer, after dinner, I was playing on the front steps with my toys. I was ready for bed, wearing my Winnie the Pooh pajamas. I was about six. My father came outside to tell me it was time to come in. We started talking, and sometime during the conversation, I called him, Dad. I caught myself. Oh, I mean Greggy. It's okay, honey. You can call me Daddy. Okay, Greggy. But I still wasn't sure. Most of the time I called him Greggy. But every once in a while I'd call him Daddy, and he loved it. He'd always tell me it was okay to call him Daddy. I think the day I first called him Daddy was the happiest day of his life. Then I started getting used to calling him Daddy, even though I didn't really think he was my dad. He felt like my dad, but at the time, Charlie was really still my dad. I never let Charlie know that I called Greg Dad. So whenever I visited Charlie, I always had to say Greg. I knew that I couldn't refer to Greg as Daddy in front of Charlie. I was just a little kid. It was very confusing, and I was very torn. Sometimes, when my parents went out, our neighbors, Maria and Louis, used to take care of us. I hated it. I didn't like just anybody else taking care of us. I wanted my mother and my father home. At that point, I had started to think of Greg as another father. One day, when they were babysitting us, I was watching a movie. In the movie, the girl's father died. When my parents came home, I was crying my eyes out. What's the matter? My father asked, sitting down on the couch with me. Are you going to die? Why are you asking that? Because I saw a movie and the girl's daddy died. Are you going to die? I'm not going anywhere. He always used to tell me that, and I really believed him. Up until I was in my twenties. I didn't want anything to happen to my father. Once, when I was young, he came home with bruises on his arms. I asked what had happened, and he told me that the bad policeman did that to him. 
I asked him why, and he said because policemen weren't nice. Not long after that, I was driving in the car with my mother, and a police cruiser pulled up next to my side of the car when we were stopped at a red light. The policeman looked over at me and started waving. I opened my window and yelled at them, You're bad. You hurt my daddy. I don't like you. My mother was horrified. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. She doesn't know what she's saying. She didn't mean that. The cops didn't know what to think because here was this sweet-looking little girl yelling at them, telling them that she didn't like them because they hurt her daddy. During this time, my father was running his crew from the Wimpy Boys Social Club on 13th Avenue in Bensonhurst, an old Italian neighborhood in the heart of Brooklyn. The club moved to a second location on 13th Avenue later, but I really didn't go there much. Back in the day, there were mob-run social clubs from different crime families on almost every avenue in Brooklyn. My father's name for his club was, of course, ironic, because Wimpy was the exact opposite of what they all were. There were about 30 guys in his crew, either full-blooded Italian or of partial Italian descent. Some were made men, while others were young associates, mobsters in training, hoping to become members of the Colombo crime family. There were mob guys everywhere. They would just hang outside, sometimes on lounge chairs, drinking and smoking cigarettes. Everything was so open back then, and everybody was just so free-spirited. No one was thinking about the cops. That's just the way it was. That's how I remember Brooklyn. My father usually left the house at 11 a.m. to go to the club, and he'd be back by 5 p.m. for dinner. We all had to be in the house by that time and have dinner together. Dinner was at 5 every day. He left whatever he was doing at the club to be home with us. No matter what they had going on, card games, whatever, he'd tell his crew, time for me to go. If he wanted to have a talk with the members of his crew after dinner, they would have to come to the house. It was very rare that he went back out after dinner, unless he was going out with my mother. But during the day, the social club was where they met to talk business, take care of business, and play cards. They ran numbers from the club, gambled, and lent money. I'm sure they planned a lot of hits there. The club was the place where they had to show face every day. Like a regular job, they had to be there. And they all had to be dressed appropriately. They couldn't go there looking like slobs, because my father wanted everybody to be clean-cut. His crew had to look like they were ready to do business, not like they were ready to hang out in the streets. My father was very strict about it. A friend of mine, Sal, who used to hang out there, told me that he went to the club one day without shaving. My brother Greg told him he had to go home. Why do I have to go home? Sal asked. When you come back with a clean shave, you can come in the club, Greg said. But until then, you have to go. When we were kids, my mother used to drive Joey and me to the club if she had to see my father. We were really young, but I remember that it had wood paneling and carpeting, and my father's office was in the back. Whenever my brother and I used to walk in there, I was about eight or nine, and Joey was about six or seven, the guys would all give us money. Well, actually, they'd give me money. They used to make Joey work for it. My brother took gymnastics, and he was good at it. He used to walk on his hands. 
He could walk across a room and even walk down steps on his hands. The guys would say to Joey, I'm going to bet you that you can't walk from this side of the club to the other side of the club. I can do it. I can do it, Joey would say. All right. Twenty dollars if you can do it. Well, if I walk back and forth, then I want double. By the time Joey walked out of the club when it was time to go home, he'd have fifty dollars or more. Joey loved going there because it was such fun for him, most of the time. My father's friend, Scoppy, Colombo Capo Anthony Scopati, and my father's boss, was the one who always bet my brother couldn't walk on his hands across the club. Scoppy was always teasing my brother. He'd give him a wedgie or just do things to annoy him. It was okay if it was in good fun, but my father didn't like anybody teasing Joey or me. One day, Scoppy put ice cubes down the front of my brother's pants. Joey got really upset and started crying. My father yelled at Scoppy and told him never to do that to Joey again, which was crazy because Scoppy was the boss. But Scoppy never did it again. The truth is that Scoppy treated us unbelievably well. But he just liked to tease my brother. And my father didn't like that at all. We loved going to the club because there was a candy store right across the street. We used to say it was our candy store because we could get anything we wanted and we never had to pay for it. Then there was the luncheonette next door. When we visited my father, he'd take us there for breakfast or just to get a couple milkshakes. They also had those chocolate egg creams, although there weren't any eggs in them. They were made with milk or half and half in soda water and either vanilla or chocolate syrup. Egg creams were big in Brooklyn because it was rumored that the guy who invented them came from the neighborhood. We loved going to the club because we could go to the luncheonette and sit with my father for a while. That old club had a warm feeling to it, but the new club was kind of cold. We really didn't like it. What I remember most about the new club was the steps going downstairs. You didn't ever want to go down those steps. Well, if you were a guy, you didn't want to take the walk down those steps because you were going to get a beating or worse. We were never allowed down the steps. You could see my father's office as soon as you walked in, so he had two-way glass installed. He could see out, but nobody could see in. I always thought it was pretty cool. As I got older, I realized why that was necessary. Joey didn't like it at that club, because now he was older. He really didn't like some of the guys. Joey told my father that he didn't want any part of them, and that's the way he felt throughout his life. Macmillan Audio presents Mob Daughter, The Mafia, Sammy the Bull Gravano, and Me, by Karen Gravano with Lisa Pulitza.
prologue. God don't like that, Nick. I could feel my stomach tightening as I steered the rental car towards the sprawling complex of the dreary cement block buildings. The prison where my father was being housed looked even more ominous than I imagined. Isolated at the end of the narrow dirt road, 60 miles from the nearest town and surrounded by mountains and 12-foot razor wire fencing. My father had just been moved to this location after spending two years in solitary confinement at an undisclosed federal prison and five years at the ADX outside of Florence, Colorado. ADX, also known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies, is an all-male supermax prison that houses some of the country's most dangerous criminals, high-ranking mobsters, terrorists, and serial murderers. It had been years since I last seen my dad, Sammy the Bull Gravano, in person. Our previous visits hadn't gone so well. We spent much of the time arguing. I was very strong-minded, just like my father, and we didn't always see eye to eye. I was hoping this wasn't going to be a repeat performance, especially since I had my mother, nine-year-old daughter Karina, and my 10-year-old nephew Nicholas along. When he was incarcerated at the ADX, it had been hard communicating with my father by phone. He'd been in solitary confinement for seven long years and had been allowed to make only one 15-minute call a month. If I was not at home to answer, he would have to wait another month to try again. On the rare occasions that we did connect, he was frustrated and angry. For five years, he had been on 23-hour-a-day lockdown, and other than his once-monthly phone call to his family, he had been permitted no contact with the outside world. He showered and ate all his meals in his four-by-six-foot cell located in a wing where the lights were kept on 24 hours a day. Every cell had surveillance cameras in it. The only person to have visited him at the ADX Florence was my mother. She had told me that he had been transported to the visiting area in a cage with wheels just like Hannibal Lecter in the movie Silence of the Lambs. They'd been holding him in a special unit for high-profile inmates. There could be no physical contact, not even hand-holding. She had to talk to him through the bulletproof plexiglass. They wouldn't even remove his shackles during her visit. The years of lockdown and lack of socialization had taken their toll. Once while at the ADX, he called me and started telling me about the bugs that visited him in the cell in the evenings, which freaked me out. He joked that they were his friends. He even named them because he was so bored. I had nightmares for months. He didn't want anyone to visit him and said to stay in touch by mail. My father had finally gotten out of solitary confinement and was sounding a lot less angry and more like the man I remembered from my childhood. He had felt useless to his family in solitary, and that had been frustrating him. Talking to him on the phone had been bringing back memories of happier times, and I started missing him. My father was not well, and I didn't know how much longer he'd be around. He was diagnosed with Graves' disease while in prison, a chronic thyroid condition affecting the immune system. I was concerned the illness was taking its toll. I was troubled by the poor medical attention he was receiving and the fact that he had not been able to work out in a physical way as he once had done. Because of his high-profile status as a mafia boss, he was being held at a maximum security federal prison at an undisclosed location. We'd flown there from Arizona the previous night and stayed at a hotel near the airport because there was no accommodations closer to the facility. The sun was coming up over the mountains when I roused the kids, got them ready, and hurried them into the car. Visiting hours started promptly at 8 a.m., and I knew my father would be waiting. I was excited to see him, but also worried about the kids. 
they didn't see anything different about going to visit their grandfather in a penitentiary. They'd been to prisons before. My brother Gerard was in prison, and so was my daughter's father. So they were used to visiting people in jail and spending the day. But this visit would be different. The facility where my father was being held now was also a maximum security prison with extremely stringent rules about contact with the outside world. The rules said that once Nicholas, Karina, my mother, and I entered, we had to stay inside for a full eight hours. A guard would sit within 20 feet of our table to monitor our conversations, and there wouldn't be much for the kids to do. At the other prisons, they knew there would be TV, card games, and lots of other kids to hang out with. Visiting areas were typically large and could have up to 40 inmates receiving visitors at a time. We've been told there'd be one other inmate getting a visit that weekend. The mood in the car was light. My mother was in the passenger seat and the kids were playing cards in the back. It was a warm summer day and for most of the ride I was enjoying the scenery out of the driver's side window. One of the things I missed living in southern Arizona was the greenery and the foliage. When I was a kid growing up in New York, I used to love to play hide-and-seek among the trees in our backyard in Staten Island. It had been almost 10 years since I left the East Coast, and I still missed it. We'd been driving for nearly an hour when the pinyon pines began to thin, and so did the road, which changed from four lanes to two lanes and from asphalt to dirt. The rocky mixture beneath my tires aggravated my already nervous stomach. I could sense that my daughter's temperament was changing. Suddenly, she grew quiet and seemed to tense up as the car got closer to the first of the fences surrounding the facility. Mom, is this a bad place for really bad people, she asked, looking nervously out at the cement watchtower manned by heavily armed guards. Worse than the place where my dad and Uncle Gerard are, because there's a man with a gun up there. Why is Papa Bull in a bigger prison than my father, Nicholas questioned. Why is it a bigger deal to visit him? Your grandfather is considered a higher profile and more dangerous criminal because he was a gangster and famous, I told them. The kids fell silent and my mother didn't say a word. The uniformed guard in the booth directed me to the parking area and told me to wait in the car until somebody came to get us. That's when I started to get real excited. I hadn't seen my father in a long time. I held such good memories of him from my childhood. He'd been such an important person in shaping me and who I am. We had our differences over the years, but at 37, I'd finally arrived at a place where I could move past the anger and accept and love him for who he was. I wanted the kids to know him, and I wanted my dad to see how they've grown up. We waited only a few minutes before one of the prison guards came out to the car to take us inside. We filled out some paperwork and had to go through a metal detector and be searched for contraband. Your father's really excited about the visit, one of the guards told me. Your father's a good guy. He's crazy, I said, smiling. Oh, he's definitely crazy, but he's a good guy. I glanced towards the kids and noticed that they seemed to lighten up a bit after hearing what the guard had said about their grandfather. Squinting against the bright sunlight outside, I hurried them out of the visitor center and through a second gate that led deeper into the prison facility. All the buildings were low-slung and looked like army barracks. There were no windows on any of the structures. The building we entered was smaller than the rest. It had drab cement block walls and looked like the inside of a cell. I could see my father standing at the end of the hallway with a guard at his side. He was dressed in the standard prison garb, brown pants, a black belt, black shoes, and a tan long sleeve button-down shirt. He almost looked like he was in the army, 
but in a tan uniform instead of a green one. Even at a distance, he looked frighteningly sick. Because of his Graves' disease, he'd lost all of his body hair. Even his eyelashes had fallen off. He was completely bald. His skin was gray, and because of the lengthy confinement, he wound up with vitamin deficiencies from lack of sunlight. My dad was 62 years old, but now he looked 80. His skin was sallow, and his cheeks were sunken. As we got closer, I realized he didn't have any teeth. He got in veneers, a thin layer of enamel put on the fronts of his teeth to make his smile whiter back in the day when he was running with John Gotti. He was in the process of changing them out when he went to prison. While in prison, his teeth had given him nothing but trouble, and he eventually ended up directing the jailhouse dentist to remove most of them. I knew he didn't have them, but I thought he'd be wearing his dentures. He hated the false teeth and used to joke that he felt like he had a piano stuck in his mouth when he had them in. I felt like crying, but I didn't want to freak out the kids, so I ran over and hugged him. It's good to see you, Daddy, I whispered as a tear fell from my eyes. Stepping back, I saw that both kids were staring at him. I realized they had no idea what to expect. They hadn't seen their grandfather in seven years, and all I had to show them were old family photos. Because Nicholas idolized his grandfather, he downloaded an old picture of him from the Internet on his cell phone. But the gaunt bald, toothless man now standing before him looked nothing like the photo. Trying to break the tension, my father joked, your grandfather looks like Elmer Fudd. The kids didn't know who Elmer Fudd was, but I laughed. Nicholas seemed okay with his grandfather, but Karina looked frightened. Technically, the inmates are only allowed a brief kiss or a hug. But the guard kept looking away, and my father snuck a couple of extra kisses and playful tugs at my daughter's hair. Soon he had her smiling. The guard led us to a small windowless room. There was a television and two vending machines that dispensed snacks and soft drinks because we weren't allowed to bring in any food. I got you guys something, my father said excitedly. He saved all his commissary money to buy the kids chips and sodas from the machines. My father spent the morning catching up with the kids and the details of their lives. One of the guards found us a game of Uno, and we sat around on the plastic chairs talking and playing the game. It felt almost like when I was a kid, and we were back at the farm in New Jersey, where we had spent our summers. We'd sit around the dining room table eating chips and playing checkers and cards. My father is very competitive, and he'd let us stay up late as long as we played cards with him. He was like a different person. It was the one place where he could relax and be himself. At the farm, there was never a sense of mob activity. It was laid back and fun. He'd laugh and joke. I never felt the stress that I could feel when we were back in Staten Island. There, my father was always busy and rarely had time to play. Some nights, I'd find him sitting alone in the kitchen with all the lights turned off. I wouldn't ask him what was wrong. I would come in and make a joke. As soon as I started to talk, he'd act normal like nothing was bothering him, but I could always tell. He'd get real quiet and stare off distractedly. Knowing now what he was going through, I can almost go back in my mind and pinpoint certain events, like the time his best friend, Joe Stymie D'Angelo, was shot dead in a bar restaurant that Stymie and my father had bought together. That night, I found him in the kitchen thinking. Do you miss Stymie, I asked. I will always miss Stymie, he said, choking up. It was the only time I've ever seen him this upset. My father is a very dangerous man. He has the ability to kill someone at the drop of a dime. 
He doesn't belittle people, but if he feels he is being taken advantage of or someone is backing him into a corner, watch out. I didn't know it then, but he was up plotting a murder that night. He was thirsty for revenge and trying to figure out how he was going to execute Stymie's killer, a member of the Colombo crime family who had harassed the female bartender at the restaurant. Looking back, I can recall a number of nights finding my father in the kitchen after midnight. Thank you guys for being good, I told the kids during the ride back to the hotel that night. Before dinner, we all went for a swim in the pool. How do you guys feel about the visit, I asked, as they splashed around in the deep end. Aunt Karen, can I ask you a question, Nicholas said. Did Grandpa ever kill anyone? Oh my God, we still had another day to go, and I didn't want the kids to be scared of their grandfather. But I didn't want to lie to them. Yes, he did, I said, matter-of-factly. It's part of being in the mafia. Nicholas persisted. What is the mafia? I tried to explain the best I could. What I knew as a kid growing up was that it was a group of Italian men who came to America. It was hard for them to get jobs and stuff, so they came together and formed a secret organization to take care of each other, like a family did. It may have involved stealing and robbing. Why did they kill people then? I didn't know how to respond. Why don't you ask Papa Bull when we see him tomorrow? I don't want him to be mad at me. That night I thought about Nicholas and his questions. He reminded me of myself at his age. He was intrigued for different reasons than my daughter. He was trying to make the connections as I once had. Well, what did the kids say, my father whispered when I hugged him hello the following morning. They had a good visit, I smiled. Glancing over at my nephew, my father said, So do you think your papa's crazy? No, you're good, Nicholas said, shaking my father's hand. Dad, Nick has some questions he wants to ask you. Nicholas crossed his arms in front of him. No, he muttered. What? What is it, Nick? Nothing. Dad, he wants to know what a gangster is and about the mafia. I watched my father's face for reaction but saw none. Taking my nephew by the arm, he led him to one of the plastic chairs along the wall. Nick, my father began, there are certain things that I might not answer, but I'm going to try and guide you. I couldn't believe it. That's just what he said to me some 27 years earlier in the kitchen of our Staten Island home. My father laid out what the Mafia was all about in terms expressly chosen for his grandchild. The Mafia started back in Italy. It was a group of men that got together and formed a brotherhood. They protected their villages and their families. These men built their new brotherhood on trust and loyalty. They would do whatever was needed to take care of one another and their families. They called this brotherhood Cosa Nostra, Italian for our thing.